one of Canada's top political journalists just left the legacy media. Today, we're joined by Paul Wells to talk about his new venture into the world of independent media. I'm Candice Malcolm, and this is The Candice Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. So this week, we learned that Canada's most prominent political writer and journalist, Paul Wells, my guest on the podcast today, will not be joining another big corporate media outlet. Instead, he's launched his own Substack called Paul Wells, where you can directly subscribe to his content and consume his political writing. In mid-March, Paul announced that he was leaving McLean's magazine, where he had written on and off for 20 years. And we just learned today that he is gone independent. One of Canada's leading political journalists, he's been a political journalist in Ottawa for 28 years before making this jump into independent media. He was a columnist over at Maclean's. He's also written for the Toronto Star, National Post, and Montreal Gazette. Wells is a three-time gold recipient of the National Magazine Award, the John W. Defoe Book Prize winner, and the Shaughnessy Cohen Book Prize for Political writing. He moderated the federal debates in 2015 and 2019. And in addition to being a print journalist, he's hosted McLean's Live. He has interviewed just about every major political and cultural figure in Canada. And uh, for a time, he was a member of the At Issue panel over on CBC. So Paul, it's such an honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Candice. Thanks for asking me. Okay, so I, I know you've been a political journalist for, for 28 years in Ottawa, you tell me. And I'm just wondering, before we get into your foray here into uh, independent media and your Substack, what, what got you into journalism in the first place? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what reporting and what journalism uh, looked like back then and how it's changed over the years. So in the very earliest incarnation, and this goes back further into the 20th century than I like to contemplate, I started writing for my campus newspaper at Western because a friend of mine was taking photographs for the Western Gazette. And he said that if you take pictures of a concert or review a concert, uh, you can get in for free. And um, the great jazz trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie was coming to Western and I didn't want to spend $17 on a ticket. So I, I went and offered to review it. And fortunately, uh, nobody else ever wants to write about jazz. So that was my first piece for the Gazette. I, uh, I'm shy by nature. Journalism allows you to go where the action is and ask rude questions. And uh, there was no other way in life that I was going to get to do that. And so that's that's really what the appeal was. Um, you go to places where fascinating and sometimes terrifying things are happening and you indulge your curiosity and you explain it to people and then you try and put it in a context. Um, and so from the Western Gazette, I went to the Montreal Gazette. They sent me to Ottawa. And uh, I've somehow never left. Interesting. And so maybe you can walk us through how the industry has changed over the years. You know that uh, us here at True North have been very critical of the Trudeau government's meddling and the the, the funding bailouts and, and the new legislation. I'm wondering from your uh, perspective, though, how, how has media changed? How has it stayed the same? Um, and, and what sort of led you uh, to choose to leave McLean's and go independent? Okay. Um, I've... The, you'll agree, Candace, that there are issues that you and I don't agree on, but I, I've also been very critical of the government uh, uh, um, attempts to subsidize news uh, production. I think all it does is it uh, opens us up to allegations of um, uh, being not being impartial, of being bought out. And, and you can debate those allegations all day long, but the fact is 
these organizations are getting money from the government. And, you know, um, it responds to, I mean, th that wrongheaded policy responds to an obvious and objective truth, which is that there's less money in journalism than there used to be. When I started, again, in the 80s, at the end of the 80s, um, if you lived in Montreal and you wanted to uh, sell a chest of drawers or a, a bicycle or a, a futon, uh, or you had a truck and you were willing to hire it out to drive stuff around, you had to take out a classified ad in the Montreal Gazette. There was no other way to let uh, people know what was going on. And so the Gazette had thousands and thousands of ads every day, you know, many, many pages of, of classified ads and car ads and cinema ads and so on. And, and, and therefore it was sitting on a stack of money. And similarly, because this is before the internet, if you wanted to know uh, what got said in parliament yesterday or what the prime minister said at his fundraiser last night or uh, who's playing at the music clubs tonight, you had to pick up a newspaper. Either you didn't have an independent way of doing it. And so that the fact that we lived at the crossroads between people who needed to sell and people who needed to know uh, gave us extraordinary power. And as a result, kind of a, a middling regional paper like the Montreal Gazette in those days had three people in their Ottawa bureau, two reporters at City Hall, um, uh, a, a theater critic, a food writer, you know, just, just a kind of an opulent uh, offering for, of journalism. And over the years, that all stopped because that went from having three reporters in Ottawa to not having any, from having two reporters at city at um, uh, the at the courthouse to not having any, um, and um, and smaller organizations have closed altogether or are struggling mightily. And um, finally, at some point, in, in my own case, in my own shop, um, I mean, I decided I didn't want to work at my old shop. And then it was feasible for me to just hang out my own shingle and um, uh, at least aspire. It's, we're in very early stages yet, but I, I, I can at least aspire to make a decent living at it. Interesting. And so what was it specifically about Subsec? I mean, I assume that when you left McLean's and, and you wrote that you or you did an interview with Hill Times saying you left McLean's because there's new corporate owners and you didn't didn't really see eye to eye with their management style. Um, you know, was, was your initial uh, decision to I'm going to go on do a Substack, I'm going to kind of follow what Barry Weiss has done very successfully down in the US and so many others? Or, or were you kind of on the fence? When did you decide to take the plunge and go independent? And what was the sort of main motivating factor there? So I left McLean's five weeks ago. And um, it's, it's pointless to litigate why the the um, the new owners of McLean's are taking it in a different direction. I thought they were doing it clumsily. And I figured life is too short to hang out with people who aren't fun to work with. So, um, um, uh, but when I quit, I had no idea what I was going to do next. I'm now at the age where friends of mine who are teachers are starting to retire. So I thought maybe I'll just stop working. I looked around for some corporate gig outside of journalism and, and, a, there were not a lot of offers. B, none of them sounded fun. Um, and then in journalism, I mean, I could work as a freelancer. I've, I've written a half dozen pieces in a month for a bunch of organizations. Um, but I figured at some point, 
editors would get tired of me calling. I the same thing would happen that has happened to other freelancers. I could uh you know petition one of the big news organizations to hire me full time. Uh, but for 20 years, people have been saying, Paul, why don't you just go out on your own? Uh, you like you know, 20 years ago, people were saying you could just write a blog and then you know uh, hold out a tip jar and people will give you money if they want. And uh, frankly, I found that terrifying. But the the Substack platform uh, makes it super easy for people to uh, pay if they want. It makes it really easy for journalists to organize and to decide, you know, what they want to charge for, what they want to distribute for free. Uh, it takes care of, it's sort of like Shopify for uh, for journalism, it takes care of all of the back office uh, uh, plumbing that I'm really not good at. And it leaves the journalist free to write. And so I thought I would give it a shot. And first day has been very encouraging. Well, it, it is a, sort of a scary thing to go out on your own and especially to, to, to start a business, which is essentially uh, what you're doing. So I certainly applaud the entrepreneurship. It's interesting you talk about the early days of media and the fact that you needed to go to these outlets in order to get information. You know, we live in a world now where all of that information is at your fingertips in a thousand different places. And so you don't really need these intermediaries as much. And and there's definite pros and cons about that. I mean, the cons is that you lose, you know, a lot of the local flavor, like you don't have, like you said, a courtroom reporter or a, a local reporter, you know, holding city hall and the mayor accountable. Uh, whereas, you know, a, a large prominent voice like yours, uh, Paul Wells, Everyone knows it. I'm sure you're you're going to get flooded with um, subscribers. Do you think that there's room on the platform or that there's still space for that sort of local reporting, or do you think that that's going to be one of the big casualties of this change to uh, online uh, media world? I always thought. I mean, back when it was just blogging, back when the, when there were a thousand people in Canada who were doing blogs more or less for free, I thought that this would allow for uh, blossoming of local reporting. Uh, someone who's just interested or mad at City Hall and 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 won't let go of that. And it really hasn't panned out that way. There's a few uh, people, Joey Coleman, who runs an independent news organization in Hamilton, and is far and away the, 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 the toughest uh, observer of how the city government in, in Hamilton works. Uh, he's been able to make a go of it. Um, but there aren't a lot of other examples. And I do think... Um, local journalism suffers uh, because local audiences um, are, are usually not big enough to support, uh, you know, a, a, a single entrepreneur. Um, uh, I, like we talk about the federal subsidies to these organizations. I mean, I worry about this, the health of journalism in this country, but I think that there are some cures that are at least arguably worse than the disease. And, um, uh, I don't. I don't think the federal government's efforts to help help much. Well, you've written you've written quite a bit about that, Paul. And I, I know, like you, Justin Trudeau's preference seems to be to just subsidize everything, right? Like uh, I've talked about this on my show in the past, but in 2015, he pledged all this money to the CBC to make up for cuts that the Harper government had had made during their uh, draft deficit reduction action plan. Uh, he promised them much more. 
the CBC used the money to create an online news outlet, essentially, where everyone could get the news for free. And then at the same time, you know, Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, National Post are trying to compete in the world of getting subscriptions and creating a paywall. And so, you know, rather than taking a look at his initial subsidy, he just chose to sprinkle the subsidies everywhere and start paying um, newsrooms to do to, to, to their news. I, I, I just, I, I want I want to sort of ask you, like, how, how do you think that's changed the media landscape in the last two years since he's introduced this, this program? Um, I mean, what it hasn't done has been to uh, make a lot of conspicuously healthier news organizations, like the, 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 the big old line news organizations, the ones that where I've spent my career, are not um, further from death's door after a couple of years of these subsidy programs. There are, there's something called the Local, Local Journalism Initiative, which is uh, an, an effort to uh, chip in money for uh, people who work in places that wouldn't ordinarily uh, um, get many journalists. Um, so Le Devoir has a reporter who, who, who writes in French about what happens in small town Ontario, and that's government money. And um, I can't get really angry about that. But I, 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 I think that the, the, the amount of money the feds have put in is not really enough to um, help us do our work on a, on a large scale, but it's, it's absolutely enough to shatter our credibility with some of our readership and our, uh, some of our audiences. And um, when, when someone, now, I mean, the nice thing is I'm not gonna be getting any federal money um, uh, at Substack, uh, I, I can't be bought and paid for except by my readers. Um, and I didn't think I was bought and paid for before. Actually, McLean's didn't, as a magazine, didn't qualify for a lot of these new programs. We qualified for a program that James Moore used to run when he was the Conservative Minister of Heritage, just as his Liberal successors have run it. But when someone says you're in the tank of the government, after all, they're paying part of your paycheck, I had no rebuttal. I know how I feel. I know I I I I I believe my journalism to be entirely credible, but what am I going to say? Like I'm not. We're not getting federal money. Well, yes, we were. Uh, that's not the sort of thing. That's not the very essence of a conflict of interest. I mean, any definition of conflict of interest I've ever seen says it doesn't matter whether your work is corrupted. What matters is whether uh, uh, an observer could reasonably wonder whether your work is corrupted. And like I say, I have no I have no rebuttal to those claims. Well, and I think a lot of people who would be critical of these government subsidies, myself included, would say that it wouldn't necessarily always be the, the local journalist on the ground, although they might have that idea in the back of their head, especially during an election, uh, when you have two parties and one is promising more money for your organization, one's promising less. But the idea that, that sort of higher ups, the, the corporate um, executives are choosing, you know, which which overall storylines to kill and chase and w where to do your research and where to do the A-tips. And, and th those are where the conflicts um, may take place. It's hard to argue against that when there's lobbying campaigns being done um, to, to try to ensure places like Google and Facebook pay their what's called fair share. Um, you know, they're, they're openly doing advocacy um, and then turning around and calling groups like True North um, activists when, you know, we're not, we're not running full page ads in our, in our, on our website promoting one government policy or another. 
Uh, so let's let's go. Uh, let's talk about your new uh, website, your Substack called Paul Wells. Uh, can you tell us about your first scoop, which is this uh, mysterious fifteen billion dollar billion? I just happen to have the URL right here. Uh, <laughs> there Paul you Wells go. Substack dot com. That was Paul from Wells. a previous call. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty thin right now. Uh, as we speak, there's one piece on the uh, on the site. Um, it's about a. Um, uh, a, a big ticket item in, in last week's federal budget, something called the Canada Growth Plan, which is a fund of $15 billion that will invest in green technology. And uh, actually, it'll, it'll invest in quite a wide variety of things. And, and the idea is that it'll attract $3 from outside institutional investors, basically pension funds, for every dollar that it spends. Um, there's a couple problems, and basically, my 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 piece amounts to a bunch of questions about that. First of all, it's really not clear to me how it's going to be 15 billion dollars. When you look in the columns of the budget, it's only 1.5 billion dollars, and they say that that money comes from savings elsewhere, which they don't specify. So that it, so that in effect, this 15 billion dollar fund won't cost anything. Um, um, this is because of an essentially an accounting technique where they say the only money that's going to get spent is the um, uh, essentially bargain rate they're going to charge on interest rates. So they're going, to, they're going to offer loans. They're going to charge less than prime to these big pension funds. And so they're going to make back about 90 cents on the dollar. First of all, I don't believe any of that. Um, I, I, believe they, I believe they honestly hope that that's the way it's going to work. But the thing is... Uh, when you're offering concessions on huge loans in a complex environment on edgy new technology, I don't see how you can have any idea um, uh, who, who's going to be investing three or four or eight years out and, uh, on, and how likely they're going to be able to, to pay you back. Um, and then the other thing I, I, I wonder is... Um, uh, well, I just have a bunch of questions about how it's going to work. And, um, and, and, and the reason I peck away at this and peck away at this is uh, I think governments get themselves in trouble when they announce solutions to complex problems that just aren't going to work. I think that uh, undermines um, uh, trust in government. And as someone who thinks that government can be a force for good, I would really like people to stop making false promises on its behalf. Well, one of the things that Trudeau government seems to love to do is put out big round numbers and then claim that they, like you said, have the solution to complex problems. So it seems to me that words like innovation and Canada Growth Fund, those are kind of buzzwords that the government uh, loves to put out there. And, and of course, it's not just Trudeau and Freeland. We see this provincially. We saw this uh, in Ontario with the Wynn government, where they would love to announce that they were you know, partnering with Google and a new building in Waterloo or whatever. And it's like, you know, what, what is it that a government, like, why, did, why would the government want to get in, in, involved in subsidizing big tech companies? Or, or why, what, what, like, what 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 is what what specifically would a Canada Growth Fund 
do to attract investment aside from, again, just going the route of, of subsidies? Personally, as a conservative, I would like to see just a, a more competitive work environment, less regulations, lower taxes across the board, uh, you know, more, more predictability from the government as opposed to these schemes. Uh, wh why is it that you think that, 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 that Trudeau goes for these schemes and, and do you think that they will be successful? I mean, you look at Canada's growth rate right now, or GDP growth, I think we're lagging last in the G7. Uh, our economy doesn't seem to be as robust as it ought to be. Uh, it doesn't seem like these kind of growth funds really work from my perspective. I'm wondering what, what you think about it. Well, so we can kind of saw it off and, 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 and uh, instead of, or at least in addition to debating back and forth, whether these things work or not, we could hope for governments that instead of announce, instead of constantly only announcing what, what's going to happen, they sometimes report on what did happen. So, uh, you know, for a while there, there was this trend about deliverology, which everybody made fun of because deliverology was a made up name that sounded silly. But it was the idea that instead of, um, instead of getting excited about announcements, about inputs, how much money are we spending on this? Uh, uh, you would track results. You would, so uh, if you hope to influence uh, infant birth weight, uh, because low birth weight children have uh, have uh, often a difficult future ahead of them, you would simply report on infant birth weight over time. And uh, if you want, if you're worried about mercury and water, you would just report on the rate of mercury and water. And if you're trying to attract, and for goodness sake, if you're trying to attract uh, a global investment into Canadian uh, technology projects, you should report at regular intervals about how much investment you've attracted. Because this new Canada Growth Fund is plainly modeled after the Canada Infrastructure Bank, which was going to build roads and ports and bridges and irrigation systems with, uh, you know, a little bit, a little bit, a fair amount of federal money, and then a bunch of investment from these international pension funds. And with a team of bloodhounds, if you went to the Canada Infrastructure Bank website today, you could not find how much how much extra private investment they've managed to attract to go along with these federal dollars because the answer is it hasn't worked or it hasn't worked very well, or it has, it's, you know, it's sometimes worked and sometimes not. And I know that's embarrassing, but if you report on results instead of on inputs, then everyone can see how well things are going. And maybe some people will come up with a better idea. And, um, and what you certainly wouldn't do is, is clone a flawed model. Uh, hoping that people wouldn't notice that it didn't work, it, di it didn't work great the last time, and therefore its odds are working. You know, I'm all about um, a higher level of accountability than what we have, and that's why I. I mean, it's it's a pretty risky proposition. I'm starting a news newsletter uh, that I hope a lot of people are going to be interested in, and the first piece is this pretty wonky deep dive into the fiscal tables in the last budget. Um, uh, but I've been doing that for a long time. Uh, and, and, and because a lot of my colleagues don't have the luxury of working at that level of detail, they don't have curiosity about it. Um, and, uh, and frankly, successful governments hope that their, their work won't be scrutinized at that level because it's easier to just kind of surf on vague impressions. Well, that's what the Trudeau government is 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 very good at is uh, 
you know, uh, pithy one-liners and uh, platitudes, uh, not so much the details. I, I, I find personally the, the whole budget process to just be uh, numbingly uh, just out of touch because, you know, you, you expect a budget to be line item, you know, this is what we're spending the money on. But instead, what you get, and I've been in those budget lockups before where they give you, they give the budget out to journalists and stakeholders a couple hours before it gets released uh, publicly. And what you're looking at is like a 500 page marketing material book uh, with all the government, you know, buzzwords and, and promoting their own stuff. And you, you really have to dig deep to, to get to some of the details. So I think uh, a lot of people appreciate you doing a deep dive, even though it might not be the, uh, uh, you know, most glamorous uh, subject for your first uh, blog post. But I, I want to ask you about another piece that you wrote a, a couple weeks ago, a couple uh, months ago, sorry, uh, over at McLean's in November. You described Trudeau's handling of COVID as twisting the spending knob to 11 and the accountability knob to zero. You questioned whether he would use a similar approach um, to his other pet issues, naming climate change and housing. Well, well this latest budget uh, we, we sort of saw a little bit like that. So it's almost like you predicted this budget in the future. Um, do you think that this is the legacy that Justin Trudeau had in mind for himself during his time at, as prime minister? Oh, probably not. Um, I, I got to say, probably the, 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 the accountability now probably hasn't been t- turned to zero. Uh, it's lower than I want to be, and I'm always trying to force it up. Um, um a couple of examples you, you quoted um, growth over the next several years is projected to be lower in Canada than in the rest of the G7. Amazingly, we can find that piece of information in the late, the, the, the latest budget. Uh, and there's also a thing that total research, uh, total uh, spending on, on research and development is uh, has been declining in Canada. And it's the only G7 country where that's been happening. I was honestly amazed that they that they admit these two things in the budget. I think that um, um, uh, some people are starting to say, "Look, we've been here for almost seven years, and the results aren't great." Uh, and so they kind of snuck that stuff into the budget. Um, uh, you ask about whether this is the legacy that Trudeau wanted. I, I keep coming back to a speech that he gave in 2014, the beginning of 2014, uh, in Montreal at the last. Uh, Liberal Party convention before the 2015 election. And what he said is, uh, if governments can't demonstrate that their efforts work for regular people, then people are going to start to look around for other alternatives. He described them as extreme alternatives. Um, I think he was right about that. I think if, if, um, if you know, the, the, the mainstream parties, the um, Christian Democrats in Germany, the uh, Liberals and Conservative uh, Party in Canada, um, uh, you know, you go around the go around the circle. The Labour and the Tories and the Social Demo- uh, the the Liberal Democrats in, in the UK, if they can't show that the work they do makes sense to people and has an effect on their life and 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 helps them, then you're going to start to see people considering other uh, other alternatives. And just my temperament, I'm not the guy who's going to say, you should consider those, uh, those extreme alternatives. I'm going to be the guy who, who reminds the brokerage parties, the traditional parties, you have a responsibility. You can't make wild promises you can't fulfill. You can't make wild claims that aren't backed up. You can't hose money around if it doesn't help. Um, because 
just as Justin Trudeau said, you're undermining the case for a, for a politics of consensus. And, um, and I don't think that's healthy. Just, uh, and I, I'm not trying to pick on you here, Paul, but it, it seems to me that there are a lot of voices in the media, a lot of pundits, a lot of columnists who are very quick to do just what you described to conservatives, uh, to say, you know, these conservatives are doing dog whistle politics, they're playing into populism, uh, look at these horrible truckers and, um, I know you wrote a little bit about the truckers. Uh, it doesn't seem like you were a big fan of them, but at the same time, uh, you, you didn't seem to uh, support Justin Trudeau's use of the Emergency Act. Um, it, it seems like there's a willingness to hold the conservatives uh, to account for things that they say that journalists think have crossed the line, uh, but, but not so much uh, when it comes to Trudeau and the liberals. I'll give you an example. During the last election, he referred to the unvaccinated. He said that they're usually racist, misogynistic, uh, people who don't believe in science. Um, really, we saw villainization, demonization of people who, for whatever reason, maybe it was because of a medical choice uh, or just because they had already had COVID and they had natural immunity. Uh, we, saw, we saw real villainization of people uh, by this prime minister. And I, I didn't see a lot of, of journalists really jumping to, to hold him to account uh, for that. I'm wondering your perspective on that. Uh, boy, there's a lot in there. Um, I've had some good conversations with people who are in that uh, convoy. Uh, I spoke to uh, grain farmers of Ontario in London, Ontario, a few weeks ago, and some of the guys there had been in the convoy. And we had a we had a we had such an exchange that after it was over, we went out in the hallway afterwards and uh, and talked for another hour. Um, I didn't like the convoy. I didn't like. I didn't like uh, the center of a, of a major Canadian city getting shut down for weeks on end. Um, um, neither do I like politics that are designed to push substantial segments of society into a corner and delegitimize uh, the way they think about things. And I, so I, I think I'm, I'm for a politics that tries to reconcile the apparent contradictions there. Um, There were, there were members of the leadership of the Freedom Convoy whose Facebook accounts, social media posts uh, uh, expressed at length sentiments that I would consider were racist. Uh, I don't, but, but neither do I think that that's a, a, an appropriate blanket description of everyone who was there or everyone who was supporting them or everyone who... Um, uh, as some of the polling showed, shares the frustrations with uh, the restrictions that uh, that we've all had to go through. Um, and so, and look, I mean, Candace, you know, uh, I don't share all of your politics. Uh, you don't share all of mine. You invited me on to talk about the work that I do. And uh, I appreciated the invitation. I'd rather have a conversation than not have a conversation. And I think I think that instinct to say, you have a bad take, therefore I'm going to rat on you to your, like the stuff we see on Twitter every day. I'm going to rat you out to your boss because I disagree with what you just said. Uh, or I'm going to uh, get all of my friends to declare that we're going to stop paying attention to you. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I try to avoid cliches, so I don't. I don't like the. I don't like the term cancel culture, but um, 
I, I think we've gotten to a place as a country where we, where where uh, we need to encourage ourselves to have more conversations with people who think differently, rather than uh, barricading ourselves with the people who agree with us about everything. Um, I think that that latter impulse it might be understandable, but it's not producing good results. I saw, I saw you had a guest op-ed in the National Post not too long ago, uh, talking about how you liked working for the Post back in the day because there was so much freedom and everyone always disagreed with each other. And that was part of the fun of the National Post, whereas now uh, it seems that people get really upset when they read opinions that they don't like and there's this sort of change in mood and culture. And you wrote you wrote that it felt like political correctness was coming back. Uh, from my perspective, it seems like political correctness never went away. It's just now it's on steroids and, and the... the uh, the, the amount of conversation, the topics that you're allowed uh, to have has gotten a lot more narrow when it comes to the sort of mainstream, acceptable uh, society. What do, you, what do you think the remedy to that is? Um, it's funny, I just gave a talk uh, to another group about trust. And I said, um, uh, we have to think about who the subject and the object is in, 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 in conversations about trust. And instead of wondering why don't people trust me, or you know why why don't people uh, accept uh, what I have to say at face value, uh, we should remember that 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 we're the subject in the question. The question is, do I trust other people? Do I take the leap of faith to believe that maybe they are uh, speaking in, in 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 good faith and 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 looking for solutions rather than just being annoying to me? And am I trustworthy? Is my own work honest, uh, based on fact, um, uh, expressed in a way that isn't looking for a fight, but is, uh, uh, you know, looking for, for uh, a, a response in a conversation? And um, uh, I can't control what anyone else does. Um, I left Twitter because I didn't like most of what I was seeing on Twitter. Um, uh, the only thing I am like, I'm, what is it? I'm captain of my soul or something. I, uh, the only thing I've got sovereignty over is my own reactions. So I try and produce work that people, I, I try and produce work that I believe in, uh, that I think people will find is worth their time. And I uh, lean hard on uh limiting the 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 natural response to say man to hell with you if you don't agree with me um uh we've all had a tough couple of years um i have been amazed at the way some people have responded to a virus that's too dumb to know what side of the debate it's supposed to be on um and i i get that we're all tired but uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think I improve things by, uh, you know, playing, playing uh, appropriateness cop. That just seems like a bit of a lame response. Absolutely, I I, I agree that um, you know everyone seems to be uh, you know tightly wound up these days, and there's a lot of tension. And I think that we would be uh, all very advised to, well, uh, your style of, of journalism and writing is always sort of the 
cool, calm, collected uh, afterthought, the sober afterthought, as opposed to the uh, the hot takes on Twitter. I, I was wondering, I'm going to ask you, now that you're going independent and you you need to promote your Substack, are you going to, are you planning on coming back onto Twitter or are you still uh, on a Twitter hiatus? No, my wife asked me about that this morning and I said, no, I'm going to stay off. I'm going to stay off Twitter. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to test some of the assumptions about, about the newsletter life. Uh, I'm uh, not going to claim that some mob of wrong thinking people is out to get me. I'm not going to, um, uh, I'm not going to try and sharpen points of, of dispute. I'm going to like this piece I wrote this morning that is, um, uh, uh, you know, opens the path to uncomfortable questions. Uh, but doesn't make sort of blanket allegations or claims. Um, I'm going to see how much of that stuff I can do. I mean, now look, I've got an advantage a lot of people don't have, which is that I've, I've, I've built a large audience over the years. But um, uh, we both know people who are happy to, you know, stride into battle every day. Uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to see if uh, it's possible to make it work with a different style. Well, that's great, Paul. I think that there's so many Canadians out there that are happy to see uh, your writing again, happy to see that there's a place where they can find your work on a regular basis. And uh, we're all looking forward to the work we do that you do. I know that uh, there's probably some members of the uh, Trudeau government that are that are not so um, thrilled with, with the fact that you're doing this, because hopefully uh, you'll be uh, holding them to account in a way that uh, is duly needed. So I, I thank you for your time. Appreciate you coming on. I know, uh, like you said, we don't always agree, but it's just nice to hear your perspective and we wish you all the best in your Substack. Thanks for the invitation. All right. That's Paul Wells. You can find his Substack over at Paul Wells. Uh, sorry, let me just get that right. It's substack.paulwells.com, right? It's paulwells.substack.com. Okay. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll let Paul hold up his uh his URL there. So paulwells.substack.com. Uh, go check it out. Go subscribe. Go support uh, independent journalism. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show.